But we are in the last of our looks at the book of Jonah. And last week we left it where Jonah had run away from God, didn't want to preach to the Ninevites, his worst enemy. He found himself in the belly of a whale in rebellion against God. He's vomited up. He reluctantly finally goes to the city of Nineveh, preaches the worst sermon ever recorded to the Assyrians there. And they repent to his shock and maybe our shock and surprise. They repent. And we pick up the story that Jonah is now angry that they've repented. And God comes to talk with him about his anger. So let's read in Jonah, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, talking of the Ninevites, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. So Lord, just take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, so he grew faint. He wanted to die, and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Jonah is angry. He never wanted the Ninevites to be forgiven. They are his worst enemy. How on earth could God ask Jonah? How on earth, he's thinking, could you ask me to forgive my worst enemies? After all they've done. And when I'm saying all they've done, we know it's pretty brutal. The Ninevites were part of the great Assyrian Empire who were known historically in our museums today. They record the atrocities of the Assyrian Empire as they marched through neighboring lands and tortured and raped and skinned alive those who they defeated. 
I mean, for Jonah, this was personal. I mean, I can forgive many other people, Jesus, but not the Ninevites. Surely you've got that wrong. I mean, look what they've done to your people. Look what they've done to us. How on earth could you ask me to go preach and see them forgiven? What they need is calamity. The last thing I'm going to be involved with is helping them be forgiven. This morning we're looking at the topic, how could God ask you to forgive your worst enemy? How could he ask you to forgive your worst enemy? I say that not very lightly because I'm a pastor and have the privilege of knowing many tragic stories of people here in this room today. Like Jonah, this is not, oh, God wants us to forgive those who cut us up at the traffic lights. No, this is, God goes so far to say to Jonah, I want you to forgive and help me bring forgiveness to the Ninevites. And I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm empathizing with Jonah. I'm not too sure I, too, would want to be involved in that. I'm not too sure whether I would run or not. Because there are some people in your life and in my life where we go, no, I want calamity after what they did. How could God ask us to forgive? It's a question throughout the whole of the Bible that God calls us to forgive our enemies. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yes, Jesus! But he goes on and says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 23, Jesus lives into his own teaching. He's on the cross, being tortured, shamed, and crucified unjustly. And his dying words are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How on earth could God ask Jonah, ask you, Ask me to love and forgive our worst enemies. This is what the book of Jonah is about. This is what over four chapters God is getting Jonah to wrestle with, and therefore you and me to wrestle with. As we look in the mirror at Jonah, we too see the roots of unforgiveness that we don't want to be taken out. Why would God run after Jonah and say, I want you to help me bring forgiveness to your worst enemies? And what we see fundamentally is it's the greatest act of love by God for Jonah. This is one of the greatest acts of love by God for Jonah to help him forgive his worst enemy. You see, unforgiveness 
compounds the pain of what's happened to you from your enemy. We see this in the life of Jonah, that actually the pain of the past, when unforgiven, sabotages your life and your future. It's one thing to have the pain of the past and the trauma, but it's another thing to see that trauma ruin our future in the roots of unforgiveness. Just look at Jonah's life. Unforgiveness has ruined his relationship with God. He just can't handle that God would want him to forgive his enemies. And so therefore, he's running from God. I'm out of here. I don't even want to go to church just in case you have, there's a sermon on it. I don't want to worship because you talk about grace and mercy even for enemies. I just so he runs, and maybe you too are running from, I, I could love those sermons about that, but I don't want to hear that. And that can block us even in our prayer and our relationship with God. We'll, we want to run and hide from any, any mention of forgiving our enemies. This ruining Jonah's relationships. I mean, think about it. He's in his little town and God comes to him and says, Jonah, I want you to get up and go to Nineveh. Leave your family, your friends, and go visit Nineveh and preach to them. And yet Jonah is so outraged, no, I'm not. And he runs, he flees, and he runs from his community. He runs from his relationship. He gets up. I mean, imagine the next day, all of his friends and families get, where's Jonah? And the root of unforgiveness can leave us so damaged that if it's ever touched upon, if it's ever pressed into, then we run away. Even from loved ones, even from family, from parents, from children, from spouses, from neighbors. It's like, it was all going well, but don't go there. And then when it does happen, we pull away. This unforgiveness can sabotage your closest relationships because you have got this root that you're hanging on to. We used to live in an expatriate community in Geneva where people, it's in Switzerland, where people would be there from all around the world. And it'd be so often when I was leading a community group there and lots of young adults and hearing their stories, some of them was like, hey, my work just transferred me. But some of them, particularly working in the UN or some other of those global NGOs, loved the expatriate hopping around different places. And we had a term for it, which is they're doing a geographic, which meant that they had something, some woundedness in them. They had some pain in them that they would land for a couple of years. But as soon as someone pressed into it, guess what they'd do? It's time for a transfer. It's time to move on. That we would do a geographic. And we see Jonah, that this pain of the past is sabotaging his life in community, sabotaging his life with his friends as he flees and goes a thousand miles west to a whole new community in Spain and he starts again. And then, of course, it ruins his mental health. You see him overlooking the city in chapter 4, obsessing in anger about waiting. Maybe God's going to destroy them. I'm just going to look. And he's obsessing and he's replaying what they've done. And he's hoping after hope, just watching, man, I hope calamity comes. I hope calamity comes. I hope calamity comes. 
And see, this unforgiveness is whatever's happened to Jonah and his people is moved from what happened to now an event he's carrying around with him that is ruining his relationship with God. It's ruining his relationship with others. And now he's in that dark depression of anger and bitterness, waiting to see calamity come. I mean, I think I look at Jonah and go, man, I see myself there. I see myself in that place, just like Jonah, when people have done things. And I'm tempted to go, God, I'm not going to forgive. Don't ask me to. If you ask me to, I'm out. If other people, other friends call me to, they're no longer a friend. And I will obsess over, oh my word, I hope they're not doing too well. I mean, come on, let's, let's be honest. How many of you have gone on social media and looked at your enemy's page with the hope that they're not being blessed? With the hope that, oh, they've lost their job. Oh, they just broke up. Like Jonah, we're looking over the city, waiting for calamity. But all it does, it warps us. It drives us further into darkness and pain. Unforgiveness takes the pain and trauma of the past, but turns it into something that sabotages your future. It's been said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping for the other person to die. And so God's act of love, way before he comes to Nineveh, his act of love is for Jonah. Say, Jonah, I don't want you to live with this root of bitterness in your life anymore. I'm going to intervene because I love you just the way you are, but I love you way too much to leave you the way you are. And as my child, as my son, as my daughter, I know what's happened. I will never excuse what happened. There will be justice. But in your life, I don't want your future to be sabotaged by unforgiveness. And I'm going to do everything to intervene to get this unforgiveness out. There's a reason God chose Jonah to go to Nineveh. There are lots of other prophets he could have chosen. But could it have been that he knew that this was poisoning his life? And so God says, I'm going to choose you. I know it's hard, but in my love for you, I want to get this poison out of you. I know what it's like to try and live with unforgiveness. I remember in my mid-twenties, I was really struggling with one person in particular. I mean, I was angry. I was angry that I would obsess about, man, if that person hadn't come into my life, then it would be so different. Oh man, if that hadn't happened, if he hadn't said that, then it would have been so different. And I was blaming him for everything about my own predicament or whatever it may be. I was blaming, blaming, and I thought it was, and I was angry. And I was afraid of what I would do if I was in the same room with that person. I was that angry. And I couldn't get rid of it. I didn't want to get rid of it after what he had done. And so I tried to live with that. I remember I met my wife and we moved to Switzerland. And I thought, great, 
I didn't move with that in mind to get away, but I, it's like, great, a new, a new start. But I found myself in Geneva, Switzerland, at my desk, kind of obsessing about, oh man, if I ever see him again, this is what I'm going to do. It was there, the bitterness had grown. I would fly back to London every now and again with my job, and I actually thought on the plane, oh man, what if I bump into him? That there was this trauma in my own life that I was hanging on to in unforgiveness, but it was ruining my future. It was ruining my own mental health. It was sabotaging things. I remember one day God intervened and did it in quite a disturbing manner. Um, and so, anyway, I'll tell the story, but be kind to me, right? So I was. Uh, we, we love skiing in Switzerland, and there was this great snow day coming up on the Saturday. It was absolutely amazing. A fresh dump of snow. We were going to go up to Chamonix. I'd got my helmet, my back brace. I was going to go off-piste. It was going to be amazing. It's just a fresh dump of snow. But on the Friday, we all went out for fondue, which is another hobby of mine. And we went to our favorite fondue place. It was absolutely incredible. And I demolished the fondue and then some. I mean, I just couldn't stop. Just this mixture of just dry white wine and cheese mixture with bread. It's just unbelievable. And so as is my fault with fondue, I completely demolished it over eight and went to bed that night going, oh, that 10 pound of cheese is not going to be good for me. So I woke up the next day and we were all going to go skiing. We got up on the slopes and I knew, oh my word, I think I'm kind of bunged up with cheese. And there was this cheese ball inside of me, and it was like going nowhere. And I started to get into pain, and I tried to go skiing, and my insides were rebelling. And I knew I needed to go to the bathroom, but I realized, oh no, I think I'm bunged up completely. And I remember going to the first chalet, I said, guys, I've got to go to the bathroom. I went inside, and I sat there for 20 minutes, but nothing. And it wasn't moving. I was constipated with this ball of cheese inside, right? And I, was, I, I would come out of the restroom looking like I'd been in a prize fight. I was sweating. I was just trying to get it out, but it wouldn't. So I literally had to go from chalet to chalet, go into the bathroom, hoping it would come out. It was just this ball of cheese. Eventually, I was literally in pain skiing down the slopes as this thing inside of me wouldn't come out. It was toxic. It just wouldn't come out. And anyway, the next day, Sunday, people were, what happened to you, bro? I was like, dude, it was brutal. And I explained, and it was pretty disgusting or whatever. And then, anyway, I was relieved. But then the next week, see, you're all thinking, where is he going with this story? <laughs> Sorry, this is why I'll never be a celebrity pastor. It's these moments <laughs> that will never put me on TV, right? And so... And other reasons, I know. But uh, anyway, the next week, I was at my desk and started again. This anger about my past would come up and this person in, in particular. I remember going, oh, man, what would I do if I saw them? What would I say? Or I remember God saying, hey, Gare, do you remember your bad fondue? <laughs> I, I, do I remember? Every bathroom in Chamonix remembers my bad fondue. <laughs> And uh, 
And, and he said, you had this ball in you. And it was poisoning you. And the more you had it, the more it poisoned you. And you found relief but only when you got it out. You need to get rid of this unforgiveness. It is destroying you. And so I remember, got up from my desk and thought, we're going to do a prophetic act of forgiveness right now. And so, sorry this is way too much detail, but it's hopefully, anyway. And so I went to the bathroom. And this is what I felt the Lord say I should do. I went to the bathroom, and I sat on the, on the can. And in my most Holy Spirit-inspired moment, I said, Lord, I've got to get this out. And I did. And I said, and as, uh, hey, ma'am, this is real, but hopefully God's speaking to you through it, right? As, as I sat there, and released. I said, I forgive you. And every time I said, I forgive you. And I'll tell you right now, it wasn't just the waste that came out. It, in a prophetic declaration and a Holy Spirit inspired moment, so did my unforgiveness. And I'll tell you, I walked out of that can, a new man. <laughs> I went back to my desk and I felt the weight of unforgiveness gone. It was poisoning me. Like a bad fondue that was going nowhere. Sometimes our unforgiveness can poison us because it's not being released. Is unforgiveness, has it bunged you up? Is it destroying you from the inside? Is it time to get rid of it? But how? See, Jonah didn't find it easy. Neither do we. How? The Ninevites, Jesus. The Ninevites. How? And so God comes alongside Jonah as a patient God, sits down with him. And in chapter four, which people don't realize is the crescendo of the story, the point of it all, he sits down as a patient father to coach Jonah to forgiveness. The first thing he does is say, Jonah, is it right that you should be bitter? Is it, is it right that you should be angry? But Jonah wants none of it. <laughs> he just walks out and hopes and looks over the city and just hopes, please let calamity come. And so God tries a different tack. He tries something else. He tries the indirect route. And whilst Jonah's waiting for calamity to come, God causes this plant, big leaf, to come over Jonah and to shade him. To which, it's the first time in the whole book that Jonah is happy. Something's going right. And yet God actually causes a worm to destroy it and a wind to scorch him. To which Jonah gets angry again 
and angry at the plant. God says, is it right that you're angry at the plant? He goes, yes, it is. See, I've got empathy with that because when I'm angry and bitter about that, it's so easy for me to get angry and bitter about that. Everything becomes that everything's against me. And so God then says, Jonah, let's have a chat. He said, look, you had a little bit of compassion, didn't you, for this plant? Because it was unfair what happened, what the worm did. He said, you had compassion for a plant that you didn't even, you didn't even plant it, you didn't do anything about it. You, you got a tiny bit of compassion for a plant. Could you just allow me a little room to have compassion, not just for a plant, but for 120,000 people? He says, look, you got a tiny bit of compassion for the plant. Dude, these are people, not plants. And I think this text is for Los Angelinos because he goes, and if the people doesn't move you, and they're animals. And they're animals. See, I think if God was talking to Los Angelinos today, he wouldn't say plants. People are more important than plants. He'd say, puppies? But people. You got compassion for puppies, but not people? Now I get it because plants can't hurt you. Puppies can't hurt you. I get that. And so Jonah, as I would say to God, yeah, but, but look what they did. This plant never did that to me. Look what they did. My Puppies don't do that, but look what they did. And God knows that, and so he says to them, look, look how I see them. I will never excuse what they did. They have to pay for justice. But look, I see beyond the evil behavior. I'll never excuse it, but I do look beyond it. And he says, look, these are 120,000 people who don't know their left from their right. Without excusing, without ever washing their evil deeds under the carpet. He says, but they are lost. And just like you have compassion for this plant, I look beyond and see a compassion for people who are lost. He's not excusing them. He doesn't say, oh, they didn't know better. Absolutely, they knew right from wrong. But God's heart went out for a people who were lost. And you see, this is the story of God throughout all of the Scriptures. He looks at the Ninevites and sees people who were lost behaving atrociously and evil, but they're lost. And it's what Jesus said when he looked at his people and said they're like sheep, lost. Remember on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. You see, we try and categorize evil people and us. And there are, 
And the Bible never collapses all behavior into the same consequence of evil. No. There are demonstrations of evil that we should be angry about, and so is God. But God is saying to Jonah, look, Jonah, we can't collapse things easily into the simplistic nature of they're evil and you're good. Do you see, Jonah, that actually right now, who is repenting? It's the Ninevites. Who is obeying God? It's the Ninevites. Who's disobeying? You. Who's not repenting? You. Who's angry? You. Who's bitter? You. If you want to have a bigger conversation about who's contributing to the evil in the world, well, in some ways, the Ninevites are just a mirror to you. Now, we're all, you are all in the same predicament of the line of good and evil goes through all of us. And from my perspective, from a God perspective, I can't collapse into the evil and the good. I can't collapse into enemy and friend. In fact, we are all in need of God's grace. And forgiveness is either for all or for none. It's when we collapse into categories and start to say, well, I'm not them, that forgiveness doesn't have a chance. Miroslav Volf, who's a theologian and a Croatian Christian, personal experience of the great suffering and pain in that country and heritage. He was speaking at the United Nations prayer breakfast and he said this, enormous poison comes into my heart and into the culture of the world when I exclude my enemy from the community of humans and when I exclude myself from the community of sinners. When I forget that my enemy is not a subhuman monster, but a human being. When I forget that I am not the perfect good, but also a flawed person. God is trying to help Jonah see who he is who is a person who is also in need of forgiveness. But the story is incomplete. Because we know, don't we, from last week and throughout Scripture, that forgiveness isn't cheap. Forgiveness is not a substitute for justice. That God is angry at injustice and he will say to us, forgive but leave justice to me for I am the fair, I will judge fairly. And God promises to judge fairly. But in the book of Jonah, we don't see how that's going to happen. And in fact, that's the ending of Jonah is incomplete. It's why it's a prophetic book because it's incomplete pointing to the story that yet is to come of how justice is going to be served. No one can ask us to forgive our enemies if it means sweeping injustice under the carpet. But God says, leave justice to me. If I leave it to you, it won't be justice, it'll be revenge. 
leave it to me. And when Jesus comes along, we see that one day he promises there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment for all those who have caused evil in the world. But what about those who have repented? Because there's also that story, for those who have repented, there will be forgiveness. Where's the judgment there? Do they just get off scot-free? Who pays for what they've done? You can't just forgive. Who pays for justice? Someone has to pay. And we know this. Whenever there is a wrong, there is always a need for justice. There is always the need for someone to pay. If, if I loan someone $100 and that person doesn't pay it back, I can forgive. But what about the 100 bucks? Either you still owe it or I release it and absorb the loss myself. There is always justice. And so where's the justice in this story? And of course, that question hangs over the end of who is going to pay for what the Ninevites have done. It's what hangs over the end of the Old Testament of this promise of mercy and forgiveness, but where is justice? And we see in Isaiah 53 the beginnings of justice to come, where the prophet writes, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own, and yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Him? The sins of the Ninevites were placed on him? My sins, Jonah's sins, are placed on him. Who is this him who's going to pay for what all we have done? Who is this him who's going to make the way for us to be forgiven but not also pay for the justice? Who is this him who's going to be so gracious that we can be forgiven but someone else pay the debt? Until one day God arrives himself on the scene in the person of Jesus and says, it's me. It's me. That I love humanity so much. I want to wipe away the pain of unforgiveness. I want to forgive and release and let other people release others that we can have a community of forgiveness. And when there's a debt to be paid, when there's a price to be paid, when there's the deserved judgment of all the sin and evil in this world, there's got to be someone to pay it. And I won't ask them. I'll do it myself. In 1 John, it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, the only way that we can forgive our enemies is because we know that if they repent, justice will still be done. And in a scandalous act of love, Jesus took the pain upon himself. And the glory of the gospel is not coming 
to the cross and going, God, how could you take the pain of all my enemies on yourself that they might be forgiven? It's also going, God, you took the pain of my sin that I also may be forgiven. Jonah ends, well, how is love and mercy ever going to heal the world? How is justice and forgiveness ever going to be combined? And the only way is the cross of Jesus Christ. It wasn't cheap. Retrospectively, even the sins of the Ninevites, he bore upon himself on the cross. But not just their sin, but my sin and yours. There's another way the story ends incomplete, and that is with Jonah. What is he going to do? Is he going to stay with the toxicity of unforgiveness in his heart? Or is he going to release it? And release justice to God. And not let the pain of the past sabotage his future. We don't know what Jonah's going to do. But the question is for all of us, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? Is it time to say, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, I need to get this out. I need to forgive. Leave them to the Lord and move on into the future that God has for me. Let's stand together.